Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. We're picking up in a series on historic church liturgy called The Gift Giver and His Gathered Guests. So why do churches do certain things like sing worship music, listen to sermons, and observe sacraments such as bread and wine? Well, there's great purpose in each of these elements, and frequency or how often things like communion are observed are important. The Reformers believed that the Lord's Supper should be observed weekly to feed our souls. Let's learn more now. Here's John with the Gift of Communion, Part 6. The second designation is Holy Communion. Holy is not some big liturgical we're going to have now. Holy Communion. You know, you think like that. All holy means is this, set apart. It's set apart. This adjective, holy, emphasizes that the communion that is experienced at this sacrament is not ordinary. It's not common. It is extraordinary. God takes what is ordinary and it becomes extraordinary. Holy communion expresses our communion with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, as well as our communion with one another as members of the body of Christ. Listen to how Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. He says this, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? That word participation is the Greek word you've heard many times, koinonia, fellowship, participation, sharing, a sharing in, a participation in, a communion with. He says this, the bread that we break, is it not a participation, is it not fellowship, communion in the body of Christ? He says, because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread, so that through this sacrament, the Holy Spirit is forming believers into an ever-deepening communion, fellowship with each other through their union with Christ. And so sharing food with, with another individual is a way of getting to know them in a personal way and establishing a deeper bond of friendship together. That's one of the wonderful reasons we're doing these supper clubs once a month on Friday nights. I just want to say a word about that. Those fellowship groups that we do are wonderful, aren't they? And, and the food was just outstanding, I'll have to say. This church always shows up and brings great organic, healthy food. <laughs> I love that. Um, if you come to Paramount Church Potlucks, you get healthy, not fat. So come to Paramount Church to get healthy. But, but, but it's wonderful fellowship. It's a wonderful evening. We just had a great time sharing and talking and getting to know each other and eating good food. And that's the purpose of the Lord's Supper. By virtue of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for our sins, he has overcome our estrangement from God and, listen, and also our estrangement from each other. And so both aspects of this holy fellowship are seen in the beginning of the book of 1 John. And this is what John writes in his letter in 1 John. He says, what we have seen and heard. What is he talking about? He's talking about the incarnation. You see, the gospel is physical and tangible. It's historical. We saw the gospel. We heard the gospel. That's Jesus and his saving work. What we have seen and what we have heard, the apostles We proclaim to you also, why? That you also may have fellowship with us. 
And then he says, and indeed, our fellowship, our communion is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so the purpose of Holy Communion is to facilitate fellowship with the Father and the Son by the power of the Spirit, as well as facilitate believers' fellowship and communion who gather together to observe this sacrament together as one body. Do you know what the goal of human existence is? Do you know what the goal of the gospel is, the goal of this whole story? It's communion with the triune God. It is fellowship with the triune God. What did Adam and Eve do with God in the garden before they sinned? They had deep, abiding, wonderful communion, fellowship with God. And, listen, with each other. We have no idea what it's like to be in a society that has perfect communion. We do know what it's like to be in a society full of racism. We do know what it's like to be in a society full of murder and crime and theft, where we have to have um, alarm systems on our homes, right? We know what that kind of society feels like, broken, fractionated homes. We know what that feels like. Some of you know what it feels like to go through divorce, have experienced divorce, or or children losing parents. We know what that feels like. We've never tasted fully what full communion feels like, but we will. And the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, points us to this foretaste. It is a pointer to the consummated reality of the gospel. So that if we are black or white, Asian or Hispanic, I don't even like those, those, those terms. We are, listen, children of God in Christ. The only designation we have as believers in Christ, the only fundamental demographic that we have in the body of Christ, listen, you're either in Christ or you're in Adam. And so this table destroys racism. It destroys sexism. It destroys all the isms of this world because it's the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. It tells us together as a body that when we come together, we are all sinners redeemed by the blood of the lamb, our Passover lamb, and we are all in him as one body. That's powerful, isn't it? And so Thomas Cramner did this. He he regarded the Lord's Supper as an intimate encounter, an intimate communion in which first and foremost, the worshipers have a deep and personal communion with Christ himself. And it is through that personal communion with Christ that the fellowship, the holy fellowship of the church flows to one another. And so this brings us to the third designation, which is Holy Eucharist. Now, Holy Eucharist is probably the term that's making some of you get a little uncomfortable, right? (laughs) Holy Eucharist. Welcome to Holy Eucharist. You shouldn't be uncomfortable with that. It's probably most unfamiliar with or resistant to using, but this is a huge mistake because it is a strong, has a very strong biblical basis and purpose for it. The word Eucharist comes from a Greek word that Jesus uses in the institution of the Lord's Supper as he fulfilled Passover, which means this. The Greek word simply means this, means to give thanks. In Luke chapter 22, 
Jesus, on the night when he instituted this sacrament in the upper room, right before his crucifixion, when he was with his disciples, Luke 22, verses 17 and 19, listen to where this comes from. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, and when the, the phrase, when he had given thanks, is simply the, the English is Eucharist. From the Greek verb, eucharisteo, means to, to, to give thanks, Eucharist. He said, take this and divide it among yourselves. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so the giving of thanks is abundantly clear in Jesus' words of institution. This designation, Holy Eucharist, emphasizes this. Listen very carefully. It is emphasizing first and foremost the fact that Jesus is leading his church out and giving thanks to God. That's so significant. Jesus giving thanks, leading us to give thanks. Holy Eucharist draws our attention to the fact that thanksgiving was a marked characteristic of Jesus our Lord. He was a grateful man. He was filled with profound gratitude. But secondly, in derivative of Jesus' thanksgiving, the designation Holy Eucharist reminds us that the fundamental disposition, Bible teachers call it Eucharistic piety. There's a new phrase for you to go out this week and tell everybody our church has Eucharistic piety, right? The fundamental disposition that this sacrament creates in the church through the power of the Holy Spirit is to possess and express thanksgiving, Tragically, the giving of thanks is often lacking in observance of Holy Eucharist, both by the leaders of the church and the people. And it should be noted that a lack of thankfulness is a chief mark of unbelievers in the Scripture. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. He says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, In the last days, that's now, that's right now, in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, and listen, ungrateful. And so we come to this sacrament this morning not with fear, not with guilt, not with reluctance, not with a yellow caution light. We don't come with sorrow. We don't come because this is not a funeral. We come with deep, profound gratitude for Christ who is at this table as our servant, saving us, assuring us of our salvation. Thomas Cranmer, again, he consciously had a structural principle within the Book of Common Prayer, which he, in his mind, was giving, listen, worship, the liturgy for the English people in the Reformation. He wanted to give them, in worship, the shape of the gospel of grace. Isn't that great? That's why I love Anglican worship. People are, why did you decide? Because the shape of the worship is the shape of the gospel of grace, and I need that. 
This gospel shape of the service is structured through three things that takes you through, listen, our need, which is our guilt, God's mercy, which is his grace, the gospel, and our response, which is gratitude. So here's the movement of, the, of our worship service, guilt, grace, gratitude. Each Sunday as we worship, the liturgy shapes and forms our lives through these repeated themes of guilt, grace, and gratitude. And this giving of thanks by God's people is captured in the liturgy by what is known as the uh, sursum corda, Latin phrase, doesn't mean anything, I don't know Latin, but I'm just telling you what words are. (laughs) And And then the great thanksgiving. So you come to this part of the service and these words are taken directly from Scripture. Psalm 25.1, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Lamentations 3.41, we lift up our heart and hands toward God in heaven. I was in a pastoral meeting one time in a church, and the pastor looked at everybody in the meeting. He said, if anybody in this church feels the need to lift their hands, they can sit on them. I didn't stay too long in that church. We lift up our hearts and hands toward God in heaven. Why do we lift up our hands? Because the lifting of our hands is an outward sign that we are lifting up our hearts that you can't see. Now, you can lift up your hands and not be lifting up your hearts. Or you can sit on your hands like that pastor and sit on your heart. Right? But God says lift up your hands toward God in heaven. So if he says it, I'm going to do it. Right? So these words, the, the Sursum Corda, the Great Thanksgiving, have been used in the church's worship since the third century, since AD 215. In the service of the sacrament, the minister exhorts the people, lift up your hearts, and the people respond, we lift them up to the Lord. The minister says, let us give thanks to the Lord our God, and the people respond, it is right to give him thanks and praise. That's worship. He, we are reminding, this is Holy Eucharist, this is a time to give thanks and praise. And then after the minister, they say, it is right to give him thanks and praise. The minister says, it is right and good and a joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, through Jesus Christ our Lord, for he is your living word from before time and for all ages. By him you created all things, and by him you make all things new. Therefore, we praise you. Joining our voices with angels and archangels. Do you understand when we're giving thanks in church, we are joining the angels doing exactly what they're doing before the throne of God. We praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. And then the Sanctus is said by the minister and the people together with great praise and thanksgiving. Holy, holy, holy Lord God of power and might. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Is that not fitting for the Holy Eucharist? This is how we approach this. And then after communion, the prayer of great thanksgiving is made by the people and the minister together. We're going to pray it this morning in just a few minutes, but listen to it. 
Oh, Lord and Heavenly Father, we desire your humble servants, entirely desire your fatherly goodness to mercifully accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. We offer and present to you, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice. And then it goes on, we'll pray in a minute, but it goes on giving thanks to God as we give a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And so by placing the great thanksgiving after Holy Communion, Thomas Cranmer was trying to teach his people exactly the pattern set forth by our Lord in both Mark and Matthew's gospel. Both Matthew and Mark record that at the conclusion of the Last Supper, the first institution of the Lord's Supper, what did Jesus lead his disciples to do? They sang. And guess what they sang? It's presumably that they sang songs from Psalms 115, 16, 17, and 118. And if you go back and look at the Psalter, you know what those Psalms are celebrating? The Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness to rescue and deliver his people. Does that sound appropriate to Jesus' work? Giving thanks and praise for the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness to deliver his people. Jesus led his disciples in a true praise and worship service. The Eucharistic prayers in the liturgy are intended to lead God's gathered guests in giving thanks to the gift giver who has given Christ and his salvation to us. This is why the English reformers wanted to remove any notion of sacrifice for the sins of the people. And so what Thomas Cranmer did was replace the sacrifice made by the priest at the altar in the medieval mass with the sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise offered by the people after they had received the gift of God in the sacrament. Why was he doing this? He was faithfully reflecting the teaching of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews says this, that no one can make a propitiatory sacrifice and offer it to God because Jesus has done that. He says this in Hebrews 10 verse 12, Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins for all time and then sat down at the right hand of God. It is Jesus, the author says, who became a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Hebrews 2 verse 7, Jesus offered the sacrifice of propitiation for the sins of the people. And what do God's people offer in response to that? The author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 13, 15. In response to Jesus' sacrifice of propitiation for our sins, the author of Hebrews says God's people respond, and through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So there is a sacrifice in Holy Eucharist. There is a sacrifice. In the observance of Holy Eucharist, the sacrifice is the people of God responding to Christ, saving work on their behalf, the author of Hebrews says, offering up a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. That's the sacrifice. And so it is precisely because the supper is God's gift to us rather than our gift to God that we are filled with thanksgiving, and that is the meaning of Holy Eucharist. Isn't that rich? 
Are you beginning to see why the church has called it Holy Eucharist for so long? And so we respond to the saving work of Christ by giving thanks with our lips and our lives. As we conclude this morning, before we come to the table, I want to just share with you, I think this is important for you to hear this. So just bear with me, but it's important to note that the Eucharistic prayers that are prayed in the liturgy are based on ancient Christian prayers and that the pattern of prayer comes from the earliest days of the church. We're not innovating here. We're excavating. We're just trying to be faithful to what the church has given us. So I want you to listen as we conclude this morning to what's called the prayer of Hippolytus. Hippolytus was, he wrote a work called the Apostolic Tradition in which he was trying to guard the truth of the gospel, and he wrote it in A.D. 215. That's a long time ago, isn't it? Listen to what he prayed. He says, we give thanks to you, God, through your beloved son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent to us in former times as Savior, Redeemer, and Messenger of your will, who is your inseparable word, through whom you made all, and in whom you are well pleased, whom you sent from heaven into the womb of a virgin, who being conceived within her was made flesh, and appeared as your Son, born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin. It is he who, fulfilling your will and acquiring for you a holy people, extended his hands in suffering in order to liberate from sufferings those who believe in you, who, when he was delivered to voluntary suffering in order to dissolve death and break the chains of the devil and tread down hell and bring the just to the light and set the limit and manifest the resurrection, taking the bread and giving thanks to you said, take, eat, for this is my body which is broken for you. Likewise the chalice saying, this is my blood which is shed for you. Whenever you do this, do this in memory of me. Therefore, remembering his death and resurrection, we offer to you the bread and the chalice, giving thanks to you who has made us worthy to stand before you and to serve you as your priests, because all God's people are priests to God, right? First Peter. And we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to the oblation of your Holy Church. In their gathering, give all to those who partake of your holy mysteries the fullness of the Holy Spirit toward the strengthening of the faith and truth. Do this so that we might praise you and glorify you through your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom to you be glory and honor, Father and Son, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, now and throughout the ages of the ages. Amen. What a prayer. What a prayer from AD 215. And so Holy Eucharist focuses us, focuses our attention on filling our hearts with profound thanksgiving and praise to God. So here it is. If you're looking for a praise and worship service, look no further than Holy Eucharist. It is the definitive praise and thanksgiving service in the church. So this morning as you come to receive the bread and the wine, remember these words of administration spoken to you. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. 
Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. That is the fitting response to Christ's saving work on our behalf. So as we reflect this morning on the three designations of the Lord's Supper, or of the sacrament, it's Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, Holy Eucharist, it's clear that we, we, we must not settle for just one of these designations. We want together to embrace all these designations so that we more fully understand and comprehend the richness of the gift that has been given to us. And like the Apostle Paul in response this morning as a church, we say, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this indescribable gift of Christ, and we thank you that uh, we, we come by faith to receive Christ this morning at your table. We pray that as we come to this visible gospel this morning, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray you would create in this church, in every heart that comes, a great spirit of gratitude. May we be marked as a church of thankfulness and praise to you for what you give to us in Christ your Son. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, John. That's a message called The Gift of Communion, Part 6. More from John Fonville coming up next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.